Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from the Times. I'm Gabriel Marcotti and I thank you for joining us. With me in the studio today, Alison Rudd and James Gearbrandt. And we're delighted that down the line from the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, we're joined by a man who refereed the FA Cup final, the Champions League final, the Euro 2016 final, the one with all those weird odd moths or whatever they were on the pitch. And also, according to Wikipedia, got a tattoo so he would never forget the occasion. It's the head of refereeing for the Saudi Arabian Football Federation and Times columnist, Mark Clattenburg. Mark, uh, quickly, is the, the is the tattoo story real or can we debunk Wikipedia? Yeah, no, it's real. It was interesting because after the Olympic Games in 2012, I got a tattoo done then, but I wore long sleeves for years so nobody knew. And it was only when me tattooist decided she would announce that I had further tattoos that it made the world headlines. I see. And how annoying were the moths? Uh, it was it, it was more annoying. It was interesting because when after the match you, you you throw all your dirty kit into a bag, which I normally pass to my wife to wash. And as uh, as I got back home to Newcastle, I opened the bag and all these moths flew out, and they were still alive. And it was just it, it was so it was so disgusting. During the game, it was it was difficult because they were coming onto your body, they were coming onto the ball, the grass. And it was only because I'd left the floodlights on the night before it had caused this problem. Yeah, I was I, I, I was in the, the the press box at that game, and I found myself killing um, I think enormous quantities of uh, <laughs> of these moths. Later on, we'll be debating English football's first foray into video assistant refereeing. But there's only one place to start, and that is at Anfield, and that's with Liverpool and City. Alison, I'm going to start with you because we, we sometimes get a little jaded about the Premier League hype and, and they were especially on overdrive after the game yesterday where they must have repeated about 500 times on television, like only in the Premier League. Oh, this is fantastic. But this was an absolute thriller of a game for the neutral, which you're not. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I suspect even if you were a City fan, it was pretty thrilling because of the the late fight back and... But for um, Aguero being offside and not quite on target, they they would have continued their unbeaten run. And I think if you were a City fan, you'd go home feeling not embarrassed by your team. You'd be feeling quite proud that they kept going. Um, it, it was a remarkable match in many ways. It was the blitz what did it. It was the fact that Liverpool, who, whenever they click perfectly, are completely unstoppable and will score quite a lot of goals in a short period of time. And that will rattle any team. It's sort of joy in football boots. It's a complete 100% belief in what you're doing. In that blitz of, of three goals, Mane also hit the post. It was it was beautiful football. A lot of build-up was about how do you beat City. Um, and I, I remember saying, well, the way you beat City is you become Liverpool. That's how you beat them. And Liverpool believed that. They believed they were destined to be the team to be unafraid, I think. Mark, I... About that 10-minute spell, because it really, it, it struck me that in, in the start of the second half, right, the, the first half I, I, I thought was pretty even, but the start of the second half, I thought City began really well. And then you have that that period, it was like a blitz, where all of a sudden everything went Liverpool's way, we saw some some tremendous finishes. That just swung the game, that, that swung everything the other way, right? It did, but this was down to Liverpool's work rate for me. Um, they They pressed high. They, they harassed Man City. They didn't allow Man City to play their normal game, their passing game. 
they were creating Man City's mistakes. It was goalkeeper from Emerson, the, the goalkeeper, which allowed um, Salah the goal. And it was just fantastic to watch. And for me as a football fan, it was going back to the, the Kevin Keegan days of Newcastle that we will score more goals than you. And it was such a such a, a great game to watch that in Premier League, even when I was refereeing, some of the games were stereotypical, but 0-0 was all about winning 1-0. Credit to both coaches yesterday. They both wanted to win the match, and it didn't care how they won the match and how many goals they scored. It just made great entertainment. Yeah, Gilbert, I'm, as you may have gathered, I'm, I'm, I'm Italian, and when games finish 4-3, I figure this is, this is not good because people must have made mistakes. Must... But I look, at, I look at the quality of, of those three goals, these are really highly technical players doing very, very difficult things. I mean, those were some outstanding finishes. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I think it it was a really good game. And I think you have to say the overall trend this season has been that generally the big games, the ones where the big six clubs have met each other, they've generally been really entertaining. There have been, I think, a couple of, of nil-nils. But overall, I think those games have mostly lived up to the hype. Mark, one of the big sort of side effects of this is that Manchester City have uh, have finally lost. Um, they lost one game in all comps this season, but obviously that was Shakhtar Donetsk, which doesn't really count given it was uh, it was irrelevant and they played a bunch of kids. But you've experienced long streaks go back to the Invincibles. We got some stick for saying that that in that half season to that point they looked as good as any team in the Premier League era. W- w- would you go that far? Now, the way the Premier League is, the demands of the cup competitions, the Champions League, it's impossible to go undefeated all season. And this is just a small blip. Next week, they'll go out and play their usual expansive game and, and go on and win comfortably, and they'll go on and win more and more games. And I think they're going to comfortably win the title because what you've got to expect is the Manchester United, the, the Chelsea's, Tottenham's have all got to keep winning and they're going to lose games along the way. Well, that's the interesting point, though, isn't it? What it what does this defeat signify? It, do you either walk away from this match and say there is no team quite like Liverpool, so it's irrelevant for anyone else to take heart from, or do you think actually you can now, if you're the coach of the next batch of clubs facing City, think ah, I can I can learn from this. I know that I am now can inspire my players to think that they can beat them. Yeah. After all, Crystal Palace came very close. I thought what Liverpool did really well is if you watched. So the front three would go and try to win the ball, obviously. But that midfield three, the, the way they pressed wasn't so much about winning the ball as much as forcing City into areas that they didn't necessarily want to be in, um, occupying space, clogging ch- uh, passing lanes, and doing it with with this incredible, hardworking, high-energy uh, display, particularly from two players that I, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of uh, as footballers, not as people, uh, Vinaldum and Oxlade-Chamberlain. I, I thought they were... They were absolutely um, exceptional. And, Mark, I promised myself I wouldn't pigeonhole you with referee-related questions, but I want to ask you one question. is The crowd, because I, I watched this game on television, and, I mean, it was, it was rocking Anfield, but I've had players tell me that, you know, they tuned the crowd out completely and they don't hear them because they're so focused. Others talking about how it gives them a lift. I'm just curious, how is it for you? Are you so concentrated that you don't hear them? No, it's different at certain stadiums and Anfield, because it's very close to the pitch, it, it creates a special atmosphere even when they sing 
you never walk alone before kickoff. It puts hairs on the back of your neck, sticks up, and the atmosphere is always special. And even when I speak to me European counterparts who referee in the Champions League and Europa League, always say Anfield is one of their favourite stadiums because of that special atmosphere. And when I remember refereeing this game three seasons ago when Liverpool were trying to win the title, and um, it was a special atmosphere then, and they can create um, certain situations and. It lifts the players, and that's what that's what happened yesterday. And it gives them that energy levels to go on. And because what I was so impressed with Liverpool yesterday was, even though the high pressing game, they still kept it up for as long as they did. And that's what the crowd does: it gives the players a lift. The wobble effect. Guardiola said his players suffered from the Anfield wobble effect that the atmosphere got to the players. And I remember when uh, Chelsea couldn't barely kick a ball at Anfield in the Champions League under Mourinho the first time around. John Terry. I think admitted, and Frank Lampard, they admitted they just couldn't cope with the noise of it. I can't think of another big team that have turned around and said the opposition stadium has just undermined them. Can you? I can't think of one. But Alison, that's probably, they probably won't admit it, but even just from a refereeing point of view, when you go to certain stadiums like Wembley, um, the Bernabeu, the New Camp, the Allianz, the big stadiums, your legs feel like jelly even when you, you're trying to run and you want to run, but it's just something there that it might be nerves, tension. You just don't seem to, to be able to operate like you would normally in certain stadiums create that. I, I said I wouldn't answer too many refereeing questions, but I need to ask one. Uh, Firmino on Stones, was that a foul? Would it have been a foul if Stones had gone down? That's interesting because when I watched it, uh, live, I thought, oh, there's, there's a bit of small contact. But what I liked about Stones is he knew he'd been beaten in a fair challenge. It was a, a 50-50 challenge. It, there was some small contact, but Firmino was strong. And Stones will be disappointed that he got brushed off the ball so easily. And even Stones' reaction doesn't even look at the referee. He knew he'd been out-muscled. I think it's really interesting as well for Liverpool as they head into the post coutinho Era. That's I, gone. It's gone. It's gone. I did a piece earlier in the season about the demise of the traditional number 10. And I came across a quote from, from Jurgen Klopp, which was something along the lines of think how many passes you have to play to get your number 10 in a position to play the genius pass. No playmaker can ever be as good as a good counter pressing situation. You literally, I mean, you could barely have had. A game that that better proved his point, I guess. All right, got to go to this. Then I'm going to direct this to our Liverpool, our resident Liverpool fan here, um, because on my ESPN show last night, Steve Nichols said, "Oh yeah, great, but what about the defending? When those two goals go in at the end, was it kind of like bad Liverpool coming back? Were, were you thinking, all right, they're going to equalize now, aren't they? Or were you just like these things happen?" No, there's been a pattern of, of Liverpool's play under Klopp. The penalty for blitzing and being astonishing and thrilling and all the nice things that go with that is that it, you become exhausted and as games fade, so do so do Liverpool. And they do not have... They do but not you thought have those two goals conceded at the end were the result of lack exhaustion? Of con- lack of... Con- no, well, mental exhaustion, lack of concentration. Yeah, but it's the lack back of a, four. Lack of, not- a, no, lack of an ability to make the opposition think, Aha, we're winning 4-1. You've got no hope at all. As opposed to simply lack of ability. Because it's when I look no, at some everything. of these defenders... No, I mean, the defend, no uh, Robertson had a great game. But I think, I think, oh God, if you had to pick 
If you could choose any goalkeeper as a backup goalkeeper, if you were a Premier League manager, you wouldn't look at Liverpool at the moment. Carrius was beaten at his near post, the cardinal sin of goalkeeping. So if you if your goalkeeper is always a surprise, it was a surprise that Mignolet was dropped, but it's hardly like, oh, it's fantastic. We've got, we've got a young, astonishingly up-and-coming goalkeeper to replace him. That, that, that gives the opposition hope and it gives your defence not, not the lift they need to know that there isn't somebody brilliant there waiting there's no De Gea type figure that you can just rely upon that when things are going slightly wobbly and maybe you are a bit tired it's all right we've got this fantastic goalkeeper Liverpool do not have that Van Dijk clearly accomplished defender but he's he's on the bench and he hands Lovren the armband as if to say oh well I've spent 75 million quid because you're rubbish but you can be captain today his Klopp's policy with his defence is at best irrational I don't know I mean Liverpool defend brilliantly from the front and as you go back down the team they defend less and less well Mark I want to get your take on this when you hear goalkeepers talk about this they all say the same thing they're like oh but you know you can't alternate your goalkeepers because they they, they lose confidence if you do that I realise obviously you're not a goalkeeper but and referees don't rotate do do, do you you buy that or does it just depend on the personality of the individual no I I don't buy it goalkeepers are, are leaders should be leaders on the pitch to hear leads for, for Manchester United. Goalkeepers want to play all the time. You're always at a club, you always have a number one. I can remember at Newcastle United with Shea Given. Steve Harper was always, always number two. And that's what Steve Harper always expected. To rotate doesn't make sense. You should have confidence in one of your goalkeepers and play them so he gets a good understanding with, with the defenders. Liverpool just lack that leader. We're, uh, what... 10, 12 minutes into our podcast, and uh, we've had uh, uh, two Newcastle references from Mark already. It's like it's like having George <laughs> Calkin on the show. Now, this season, with your subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times, you can watch every single highlight and every goal from every game in the Premier League, Champions League, Europa League, and the FA Cup as well. And we've got quite a deal for you. It's just £3 for a three-month trial. And of course, you don't just get the goals. You also get, I think, some excellent content and uh, an excellent writing from the likes of George Culkin, Henry Winter, uh, dare I say, James Gearbrandt, Ollie Kay, too many to mention. And of course, Alison Rudd, too. She's making a frown because I haven't mentioned uh, her name just yet. You also get Mark Flattenberg's insights, too. So what's not the love? Just £3 for a three-month trial. Now, Alison, what was your favourite goal of the weekend? Lots of lovely goals, weren't there? But uh, I go for Mo Salah's at Anfield. It was funny, and I like a bit of humour in a goal. It was also, it also felt. Um, I'm sure Edison found it hilarious. Well, I, it, that, it felt significant because Edison's supposed to be the final piece in the jigsaw and the reason why it's been so good for City this season because they got like an extra player on the pitch because he's so good at distributing the ball as well as saving saving shots. What was beautiful was the way that Salah, who I think it was Salah's ball, he was hoofing back. The control that Salah showed to collect that, because he hit it at some pace, he collected it, and then the speed of thought to... Yeah, it was obvious that Edison's out of his goal, therefore loop it over him. But the speed of thought, the exquisite nature of the control, I just thought that was lovely. Mark, your choice? My favourite goal of the weekend was Joe Lolly of uh, Huddersfield Town, the equalising goal against West Ham. I loved the way he received the ball out wide. There wasn't much on. He cut inside, took responsibility and killed a beautiful shot past the West Ham goalkeeper. Yeah, I like that one too because I always thought, I, I feel like 
he hasn't played much this season at all, and he's kind of like a bit player, and I love it when the guy's like, I'm just going to seize this moment. Uh, James? I liked um, Tottenham's final goal, the, uh, the goal scored by Christian Eriksen. Uh, really lovely team goal. I love those goals where the team strings a few passes together and you can see the spare man sort of making a run and you know there are, there are no defenders left. Dare I say, sacrilegious, it's, it's almost like, like an overlap in rugby. The back heel as well, the way that... Um, you know, Ericsson was just kind of um, cantering into the box on the outside. I thought I thought it was a really nice, nice team goal. Also today, reaching us the uh, sad news that uh, Cyril Regis, um, being perhaps best known as uh, as a striker for uh, for, for West Brom, um, has passed away, age fifty nine. Uh, for those who don't know, and I had the privilege of, of meeting him once. He, he was a lovely man, but also. One of the uh, first high-profile um, black players in, uh, in in the English game, and a guy who really was 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 loved by by everybody. I think you'd struggle to find people to say anything negative about him. Ollie Kay's written a piece about this uh, online uh, this Monday. Cyril Regis has passed at 59. Moving on to the South Coast, we'll we'll, we'll get to Arsenal in a minute. Um, because obviously it's, you know, it's Groundhog Day. But I want to talk a little bit about Jordan Ibe because he comes in at, at, at Liverpool. He's he's a winger. He's a wing back. People get excited. He moves to Bournemouth for a ton of money. And as often happens with guys who Eddie Howe signs for a lot of money, they arrive, they kind of disappear for a while or they play poorly. And then they come back and they start playing really well. This is what's happening with this guy, right, Allison? Yeah, no, his, his stats have completely flipped over. He, he's as productive now as he, as he was unproductive when he first arrived. And for all the uh, grief uh, Eddie Howe gets for not being able to integrate anyone who costs any money and didn't do the, does. do the journey with him from, you know, the back garden. Um, he's worked with him. He's given him clearly enough self-confidence to not let it get him down that he wasn't fitting in. And it's that if you analyse Bournemouth's performance, it was all about I being prepared to work hard. What happens is if you're in a slump, you've got to work your way through it. And if you run around a lot with intelligence, you will get just reward. And it takes a lot of self-confidence to do that because if things aren't going so well, you, you start to hide and then you get dropped and it's really hard to work your way back into the team. So the analysis, um, certainly on Match of the Day 2, I think highlighted it, that he just covered a lot of ground. And try Mark, tries really hard now. Mark, um, Bournemouth uh, were in the situation where obviously Eddie Howe was kind of the next big thing for several years, and they had a pretty nasty patch at the start of the season. Um, how are you seeing now? Are you seeing an improvement, or is it just a case of Arsenal being terrible? Probably a bit of both. A bit of both, but Bournemouth, you know, they're trying to work their way with hard work out of their situation. There's a few results which could have went either way and they didn't go their way. And This is where Eddie Howe has to, to earn his money. He has to motivate his, his players and make sure that Premier League survival is the, the most important thing. But going back to Arsenal, this is the same old, same old Arsenal. They'll play brilliant one week and then it's disastrous the next. There's you know Sanchez potential transfer away and it's just... You know, when Arsenal, uh, and I've refereed them many times in situations when they could go on and try and win the league, they weren't near the top. It just seems to be mental strength. It seems to be when the moment it is, 
and they need to kick on and they just feel to seem to kick on. But when the when the stakes are not so high in, in games, they seem to, to perform unbelievably well. Because I know that when referees prepare for um, a match, they think about who the teams are and their style of play and the sort of pace they play at and how physical they are and so on. If you're a referee and you don't know which Arsenal are going to turn up, as the referee, how quickly do you know, oh, this is this is this today is the Arsenal where they're a bit slow and rubbish, or today this is the Arsenal where they're going to give it a go? I think it's the first ten minutes. You'll see the big players, your Ozil's, your Sanchez's. If they're wanting to work, the work rate's high. Uh, they're not getting um, frustrated. You know that that's Arsenal at its at its best. When when you get your star players frustrated early, they're arguing with each other, and that's when you know Arsenal have got problems. Alan Shearer, while he was describing their defensive mistakes, and they kept showing video of, of Maitland Niles falling over and Chambers kicking the ball into the the, the Irish Sea or, or whatever. <laughs> Callum Chambers is not a technically bad player. We've seen him. Do you have any explanation? Do you have anything new to say about what's happening here? No, I mean, we, we, we always kind of, we, I feel like we've quite we've quite often said this in the past, you sort of, in analysing Arsenal performances such as these, you, you sometimes kind of struggle to add any new explanations. I mean, that the, the footage you're referring to on, on Match of the Day 2 that Shearer is in pain when he talks. It, it, like it, it's like it's like it upsets and offends him, and he's not even I an mean, Arsenal fan. We've we've all watched enough match of the day to have seen you know little clips of footage of someone doing something bad and pundits criticising it. But even for someone inured to that, the footage of the Arsenal passing Shkodran Mustafi and Callum Chambers misplacing simple passes and hitting the ball out of play is genuinely quite quite shocking to see. I think one thing that hasn't hasn't helped Arsenal this season is the continuing uncertainty over whether they're a back three team or a back four team. I mean, surely if we were to come down to a kind of firm decision on that, that would help because I think so much of coaching defence in particular is about is about system. Why does he play a back three? He never played it until it became in vogue last season. He doesn't have a lot of good central defenders. The ones that he does have are injured. Why does he do this? And another thing that I would throw on there is what to me feels kind of symptomatic of the sort of hurt of, of Arsenal's whole season is what has happened to Sayer Kolasinac? Kolasinac came bench, in and at the start of the season, he looked like a great signing. He looked like, you know, someone who not only was a really good player, but in his whole kind of approach to the game really lifted the team in his sort of, you know, his hunger and his work rate and all those things that we go on about. Yes, okay, I realise that he has, his form has maybe tailed off a little and, you know, Maitland-Niles has come in and generally Maitland-Niles has, has done quite well. But, you know, can Kalasnac really not get in the team ahead of Rob Holding? Mark, obviously bubbling in the background as we tape this, uh, as of right now, Alexis Sanchez is still an Arsenal player. By the time you listen to this, he might be at another club. And we won't go back and criticize them for letting all the contracts wind down and whatever that's come and gone. But we seem to be in a situation now where this guy is wanted by Manchester City and Manchester United. City, of course, have won him before. He's played for Pep Guardiola before at Barcelona, although not particularly well. City have put a number on it. They're saying supposedly 20 million. And otherwise they say, oh, otherwise we'll just get him on a free at the end of the season. But now Mourinho mischievously has gotten himself in involved. And he's apparently willing to meet the asking price and uh, um, and, and and I suppose the personal terms uh, as well. 
As a fan, where do you think he's a better fit, City or United? City, without doubt. I'd be surprised if Alexis Sanchez chose Manchester United for the reason of, you know, winning trophies. Manchester City are for sure stronger. They're going to dominate English football for the next few years. And playing under Guardiola is certainly going to benefit Alexis Sanchez as a player. The way City play the game is different to United. Um, it'll suit Alexis Sanchez better. And it'll just be a waiting game. Um, I'm sure that Manchester City will wait as long as possible, but I'm sure you'll become a, a Manchester City player in the near future. Wow, pretty confident. It, it's an interesting one because I did a piece uh, over the weekend with um, the guy whose job it was when he when Alexis Sanchez was at Udinese, where he had an offer, a very strong offer from from Manchester City, then coached by uh, by Mancini, and he had an offer from from Barcelona, then coached by by Pep Guardiola. Um, this guy said, "Don't go to Barcelona because." At the time with Pep, it was very much a, you know, sort of that, that hardcore tiki-taka play, all the sideways, very collective-oriented, all the sideways passing. Um, whereas with Mancini, it, it was going to be more direct at, at City. Then Alexis Sanchez got a phone call from Pep and from Lionel Messi, and uh, the rest is history. He, he goes to Barcelona, only spends one year with Pep, really sort of struggles, I think his first two seasons, and third season, a little, more, a little better, and then moves to Arsenal. Um, but he made the point that, Right, that that today it's it's a different Pep. Uh, it's City are a more direct team, a more a more pace oriented team. You know, he's he's certainly left room for all the possession for the for the individual, and then maybe it's a different Alexis Sanchez today as well. Um, would would you agree with that? I can't see the new Pep, the Pep we now know of this season in the Premier League, really wanting. And Alexis Sanchez, who has effectively gone on strike for Arsenal. He doesn't like players who are capable of, of dipping their energy levels. This is why Aguero struggled to be first choice, because he doesn't think he pulls his weight in training. If I was Pep, I would look at Sanchez and think, well, it's very nice you want to win trophies. And if you want to win trophies, then you'll want to come to City. And you might well admire me as a manager. But I'm not sure I like the baggage you would bring. Is that, is that such a ridiculous thing to say? Well... I mean, when he's in the right environment, he gives you everything, I, I think is a point. But you're right. He is a little bit, um, you know, he can be a little bit introverted and, and obviously in a situation where, where he wants to move and he's using the leverage at his disposal. But I don't, I see, I don't think that makes him an attractive person to buy, the fact he's done it that way. Well, I mean, what else is he supposed to do? Just sit and rot at Arsenal, sign an extension and play for fourth place every year? You can still, you, you're more likely to get the move you want if you're playing beautiful football. Um, Gearbrandt, you're going to make the case for Manchester United since I saw a picture of a young Ed Woodward and he does have a bit of a striking uh, resemblance to you. I hope, I hope you mean the, the, the actor, Edward Woodward, the, the famously <laughs> dashing Thespian. Yes, very much so. <laughs> that, that's the thing. What would you say, if, if, if you were making the case, okay, pretend you're Ed mm. and I'm, I'm Alexis um, and... I have reservations. Well, I, I'll go can I, there. Can I play the tea lady? Can I play the tea lady? You can play the tea lady, okay. yeah. <laughs> um, and be like, Jose, what's your plan for me, given that you have uh, Martial and, and Rashford and, and Ibrahimovic and Lukaku and Mkhitaryan and Mata and Jesse Lingard? Where am I going to play? Well, why should I go there? And shouldn't you be buying defenders and central midfielders? What would you say to me? Clearly, he would have to say, 
well, you know, we want you to be first choice in such and such a position. Now, I don't know what that is. Maybe What's he, his natural position now? Is he center forward now? Is he? Because he, I don't think he's a traditional winger, is he? He's not really a traditional winger, no. I mean, at Arsenal, he's kind of played in that inside forward role in, in a sort of 3-4-2-1 or a sort of or, or three up top formation. Would he, you know, would he work as well as the left winger in a in a four two three one? I think they have a lot of good attacking players. It would be odd if United were trying to sign him if they see him as a centre forward, because you've already got Lukaku and Ibrahimovic, and you've spent you know ninety million on Lukaku only this summer. I mean, unless you're planning to play two up front, two up front all the time and just completely shelve. Ibrahimovic. I mean, maybe. Well, and possibly Martial and Rashford. Too. I think it's more likely that they kind of envisage him for the left wing role. And there have been cracks in the relationship between Mourinho and Martial. It's never kind of quite run smoothly. That would probably be my guess. Can I just tell you, your brief when I asked the question was to was to role-play, pretend you had Woodward and convince Alexis that he should come Sorry. to United, make the case for United. You've done a rotten job of that. Do you, um, want, do you want tea? Do you want tea or coffee? There you go. Do Thank you. you. Sugar, Thank you, tea lady. Sugar in your tea? Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Love the game? Then don't miss The Game Daily. It's your lunchtime update from football's finest writers and it's only at thetimes.co.uk. Video assistant referees, Mark, we, 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 we had the first two games uh, last week in the FA Cup and the League Cup. Um, How do you think it went? It was positive. Um, probably the second match. Um, also, Chelsea, it was overused, so it stopped a bit of the flow and... When you lose momentum in a game, the game becomes a bit disorientated. I thought that's how the game um, evolved in the second one. The first one was interesting because it had the first um, situation where um, was there was there a handball that led to the to the winning goal at Brighton, and it was clearly reviewed by the video assistant referee. The only problem was I didn't feel it was solved correctly. Uh, one of the procedures that IFAB and, and FIFA um, ask the referee to do is to show a TV screen with the hands to show that we're actually reviewing the situation. So it's telling the, the viewers, it's telling the, the pundits, the, the spectators that the referee is actually looking for the video assistant referee to support the decision. And it was just a bit of confusion because when the referee puts his finger to his microphone, that could be listening to something you don't know what information is getting. And I just felt that the procedure that the referee gave Andre Mariner 
wasn't the correct procedure going forward. They should show the video, the TV screen sign, which then lets everybody know that that decision's getting reviewed. I think it is preferable to have a situation where there is complete, not transparency, but sort of, you know, visibility but for the spectators is, there, in the stadium to be party to that, you know. To, well, the thing is, surely it's better every, to have it on a big screen and so the people in the stadium can see right is yeah, clearly that's, offside that, 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 I agree with you. That's easily done. Right. You know, we, we've had this all season in, in the Bundesliga and in Portugal and Serie A and, and MLS and whatnot. And... You know, there is a pretty stand. I, I, I'm guessing because it's new, maybe he just, just forgot with all the excitement. But, I, I, Alison? Mark, that, you see, oh, that's so interesting because I took from the fact that Andre Mariner did not do the TV box sign was because he hadn't asked for a review. He was listening to Neil Swarbrick. It's not his job to ask for a review. No, but th- 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 that's the point. If he's already heard the information, you know, carry on. It's fine. You've you've made the right decision. There's no need to change anything, Andre. Yes. Then it's a bit odd to then make the sign because it's already happened and you want the game to flow. Because when you get the sign in other sports, it's because it's about to go to review and it's about to be seen on the big screen and everyone knows what's about to happen. So if Andre Mariner had given the sign, it, it would be a retrospective thing and it would have held the game up further. No, Do you see what I mean? It wouldn't in this case because it was a goal and it takes 90 seconds for a restart in general. But, so, but if people what, see him make the sign, they think something else is going to happen. But in fact, no. it, it's, it's, a, it's a lie. He's giving an untruth because he's implying yeah. that he's about to get information when he's, he's already got it. What would have been better, just from a, a player's point of view, from a dissent crowd, and just from a selling point of view, because you don't know what the conversations are. Yeah. If Andre Mariner seen that it had come off his knee, didn't think it would come off his hand. He gives the goal. Okay. The video assistant referee automatically re- reviews because it's a goal. He has to look. Is the ball out of play? Is there an offside? Has there been a hand used to score the goal? That's what he would have then looked at. That's when Andre Mariner should have said, okay, this is just getting reviewed to double check it wasn't a handball. That would have kept the Crystal Palace players happy at that point. And then... He would have given the screen, the TV screen again, and then awarded the goal, which meant it's gone through the review and we are happy 100% it's a good goal. That would have been a better procedure just from a selling point of view. Mark, um, one of the things that, because I'm kind of sad, that gets me excited is, um, is when there's an opportunity to hear the conversations between the assistants and the match officials. And obviously you can't do it during the match, but I mean, I remember when they had the um, additional assistant referees at Euro 2012, UEFA released some audio footage. And I, I think, I, if memory serves, were, 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 you, were you in a, you were in AAR in that, right? Yeah, I was for Howard Webb, and I was actually used, my Geordie accent was actually used in one of the... Exactly, the that, that, yeah. that's the thing I heard. But no, but you understood, like, hey, this works, right? Because you're relaying information back and forth. And I know referees have, have egos, but, you know, if they get along... This is teamwork. This is how it's supposed to work. And in Italy, they, they released some of the audio that takes place before the VAR, and it really is the case. You've got a referee and two sort of video operator spotter types with them, and and you hear their conversations among themselves, and then you hear them talking to the referee. And when there's a, there's, there's a potential overrule, they go to the referee and they say, Hey, you sure about that? Because to us, it looks as if the foul was outside the box, or it looks to us as if, as if you might have missed this, or did you see that? And then, obviously, it's up to the referee to decide whether he wants to go look at the screen or not. 
obviously you don't want to send this audio out live during the game because maybe you guys occasionally use industrial language and whatnot, but can you just talk a little bit about the cooperation and the trust that, that you have to have in the same way I'm, I'm guessing you must have the trust in your linesmen or assistant referees? You, you have to have massive trust, but you're a team. Um, I was lucky enough to work as a six in Champions League and in, in, in Euro and in, in, in any major competition. So you have to have massive trust in each other that you're going to get the right information across. And It's important that even when I worked as a, an AAR for Howard, it wasn't about me trying to overtake his position. It was about me helping Howard be the most successfully good on, on the pitch. And if I could enhance his decision-making, I always, always would. I think in future, it'll not be now because it's a new system, but certainly in the future, I can see, um, for example, the referee who can open and close his microphone at any point by the use of a button would be to close the mic during the game so you can't hear any language or you can't hear any conversation, general chit-chat. But when a referee wants to speak, especially about the VAR, about, for example, Andre Mariner could open his microphone so everybody could hear to say, I'm actually looking to see if this goal is clean. Has it come off his hand? So that lets everybody know that there's a potential handball. And then you have the video assistant referee who's in, in a studio can then relate that back calmly that the ball hadn't come off the arm and that's a good goal. And people can then be able to relate to that. It's funny because obviously we've had trials, I think, in well, in the Confederations Cup and, and various games. And, and even though opinions is slightly divided in some places, generally, I think it's been generally well received, certainly in Portugal, in Italy, in the US. In Germany, they've had some issues, but overall, there's no question that they've gotten, they, they, they've corrected more wrong decisions. The one place where it's been an absolute car crash has been in Australia. And I don't know if you've done this or if you take any interest in this, but I, I've gone back and uh, I'd looked at situations in the A-League and it strikes me that the reviews are taking too long and that's one problem. But a lot of it is also that these referees aren't particularly good and they don't seem to be well-trained in how they relate to uh, their, their, their video assistants. I mean, have you followed that at all? We're about to use video assistant referee next season. We're training at the moment and there's a lot of time, a lot of effort into to making sure that they understand the system, how to use the system. And I'll use two examples where the problem you've got one example, for example, John Stone's um, incident yesterday. Was it a foul or not with Firmino? People can say yes or no. That's opinion. It's a general call. I don't think it is. Some people say it is. That's not for a video assistant referee to get involved. The one that you want them to get involved in is the one where the Watford player uses his hand to score a goal. This is absolutely 100% handball, and we're clear. And what's happening in Australia is exactly that. They're getting involved in situations that they don't need to get involved in. It's opinionated sport. Video assistant referee is only used where there's an offside, a matter-of-fact ball over the line, or where there's an absolute clear case of handball, that, foul, not the ones that are opinion. That's, that's the key, isn't it? Because the language says clear error, but obviously what's clear to, to you might not be clear to, to, to Neil Swarbrick. And... I think when we're going back to the trust issue, you know, you've got a referee essentially in the video booth going to his colleague on the pitch saying, hey, you need to take a look at this because I think you made a clear error. In other words, I think you just screwed up. And that takes a certain level of, of trust and openness, doesn't it? 
It does, but you would only do that if it's absolutely matter-of-fact, i.e. the right. ball being punched into the goal, a clear offside, ball clearly over the line. If there was a one where you think, that looks a penalty for me, I think that's a penalty, you can actually review it and tell the referee to go to the side of the pitch for him to make the final decision. So where there's a bit of doubt, you can refer back to the referee but, but, to make the final doing, sorry, but, but, but by doing that, you can only do that if you think there's a clear error. So you're implicitly saying to the referee, I know in my scenario earlier with the conversation is like, you, hey, you might want to take another look at this because you might feel you committed a clear error, but you're implicitly saying that you got this wrong, aren't you? You're not 100% because football's a contact sport. Of course. So where you think the contact can justify a penalty, in my opinion, it might not. From my, my experience of being a referee for 13 years in the Premier League. So... It's one of them where it's in the grey area. Some people will say yes. Majority will say yes. Some would say no. That's the one you want to say to the referee, do you want to have another look? If he's 100% saying no, I don't need another look, that's up to him as the referee because he's the lawmaker. He's got the final decision. Not the video assistant referee. It's the referee who makes the final decision. But where it's absolutely clear, where the ball is clearly over the line or clearly offside or, for example, the ball's been scored with your arm, they're easy to, to overturn, and I think every referee would support each other in, in giving that information. Has there been cases of the voice in the ear saying, I think you might want to look at that again, and the referee goes to the screen and has a look and decides, no, I didn't actually, I was right all along, and, and is overruling the voice in his head saying, I really think you made a mistake. Or does, it, or, does it always, does it always generally mean that you've put doubt in the referee's mind that he's, and he's going to expect to see something different? That that'll get that'll get erased over over a period of time once referees get you know more and more experience. This happened in the Confederations Cup uh, with our Saudi referee Fahad Al Madati. He was referred from the video assistant referee. He thought there was a penalty kick and a clear error. So Fahad Al Madati uh, went to the video review area and decided it wasn't a penalty, which was the correct decision. It took a brave referee to do that, but the correct decision was made. So with the training, with the education, and it's going to take time video system referee won't get involved in incidents that are um, in the grey area. It's only when absolutely um, the, the headline where it's going to be on the back pages. What was on the back pages this weekend? The handball. This is the one that will want clear. Not the John Stone's little push. Nobody talked about that. That's part and parcel of the game. But where there's clear simulation, where there's clear handballs, this is what we want to stop. Uh, I was at that game actually and, and that was a uh tremendous example because it was early on people were wondering what's going on and you looked at it and you said well he could overrule I mean that could have gone either way but the point was precisely as you said Mark it was not a clear error uh Mark thank you so much for your time thank you very much and look after yourselves guys and you remember the sunscreen yeah no problem thank you very much <laughs> take care bye-bye for some quick hits. Tottenham beat up Everton 4-0 and Harry Kane scores again. Yawn. Allison, the Pochettino bandwagon is rolling again. Five wins in six. Are you ready to hop back on and ride it all the way to the top four? Uh, yeah. I, I had Spurs winning the title as my prediction back in August. So I'd be a fool to say they won't finish in the top four now. The real test will come when they're back in Champions League action because Pochettino used the Champions League as an excuse for a lot of those poor results. They're a bit like Liverpool in that when they click, they really click. And Kane just shows no sign of getting tired. 
Meanwhile, Everton were turgid in that match, and Schenk uh, Tosun is going to be rather lonely up there if the folks behind him don't string passes together or seem to show any awareness that he's actually up there. Gearbrett, what's your take? Well, I just got the paper open at the page where we have the expected goals for all the results, and uh, the uh, Tottenham-Everton match, the, the expected goal scoreline was 3 points, 4-0 in the match itself, and the, the expected goals was 3.93 to 0.32. And it's pretty rare when you have a 4-0 that the expected goals are actually pretty close mm. to 4-0 to as well. You could argue this is a bit of a one-off. I think actually mostly Allardyce has made Everton better defensively. The problem is that they also have a huge problem in terms of attacking chemistry, and Sam Allardyce is not the manager who you would really look to to solve that. Stoke City! have a new manager having uh, dispatched uh, with uh, Sparky last week. Uh, they're replacing him with Lammy, uh, Paul Lambert. Um, Paul friend Lambert, friend of the show, Paul <laughs> Lambert. Um, Alison, I'm sure you've got plenty to say about this. Yeah, first of all, wow, because I don't think anyone had that as the uh, the obvious appointment. When a club's in trouble and Stoker in trouble, as the owner, you appoint somebody who's as different as you can get from the person they've let go. Mark Hughes was guilty of being a bit superior, didn't take training often, often just looked baffled if the players didn't do what he wanted them to do without getting his hands dirty. Paul Lambert, I think, will go in and make tough decisions, will get very angry with players who aren't working hard enough. He might do a bit like what Moyes did at West Ham. He'll make sure they're pulling their weight and they get fit because there's a lot of slow players at Stoke. Ooh! Sorry, I went for the uh, cartoon fanfare instead of the uh, lightning. But are you happy? That was as shocking as Paul Lambert being appointed as Stoke manager. We're all surprised, but uh, good luck to to Paul Lambert. I think he's got some unfair stick at times of the past. Chelsea make it three nil-nil draws in a row. Although, to be fair, one of them was that game at Norwich in that other cup competition that wasn't really Chelsea who was playing in it. I had the pleasure of watching that one. Or, yeah, but uh, wasn't that like sort of Kennedy and guys like that playing? Yes, it was, and, and, uh, and uh, Michi up front as well. But they're held by Leicester at home, and this was the real Chelsea. What's wrong? Conte's blaming fatigue uh, again, but I suspect that maybe they're even a little bit fortunate to get a point, Gearbrent. Leicester played really well. I think they continue to look basically like a good team under under Claude Puel. Hazard, there's in the the three five two, which Conte has preferred this season to the three four three. There is a lot more emphasis on Hazard, and he isn't. He is struggling a little bit at the moment and they don't have a Pedro or a Willian to kind of, not in the starting lineup anyway, to sort of balance a little bit of the... They also don't have a Riyad Mahrez. And in fact, uh, um, I think you were so unimpressed with uh, Chelsea that uh, your piece in the game today is entirely about Riyad Mahrez and the argument for him uh, going to a, to, to a, a top six side. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? It's not quite entirely about Riyamizers. It, it gets into Chelsea and Hazard and the three-five-two and what they should be doing this season. But with all due respect to Leicester, I think it's somewhat surprising that three full transfer windows after Mahrez was the player of the season in Leicester's title-winning campaign, that he's still there and none of the big clubs have managed to prize him away. He hasn't quite matched that consistency since then, but I think he's still a very good player. I think since the start of the 2015-16 season, there are only three players in the Premier League with 20 goals and 20 assists. Deli Ali, Christian Eriksen and Mares. So you think he could do it 
at a top Look, six club. I think if Arsenal, for example, want an attacking player to replace, sort of creative wide player to replace Alexis Sanchez, they could do worse than Mahrez. They could do a lot worse than Riyad Mahrez. That was the thrust of the piece. Reportedly, Phil Neville is a front runner for the England women's team. Alison, given that, as far as I know, he's never worked with professional women footballers in his career, and he's never actually managed anybody other than, I think, he had a stint as a Salford City caretaker manager, according to Wikipedia. This makes absolutely zero sense to me. I, can you enlighten me on this? Are they just going for him because he guarantees more visibility and attention to a national side, which let's not forget, are, I think they're ranked number three in the world? Yeah, they are. And it was interesting. I was at um, a women's match on Sunday. I was surprised just how, well, negative's the wrong word. People were sort of slightly aghast and they made those very points. And it's good that they did. It, they, they, the women I spoke to, they wanted to make it perfectly clear. We're not grateful that someone who's a famous pundit and was a famous player should be, you know, deigned to take the, the reins um, of a woman's team. We'd quite like someone who's managed women before or indeed been a manager before. Like, say, Mo Marley? Indeed. You know, the idea that the women might be grateful that someone who's high profile takes the job didn't didn't go down very well and they quite rightly want to know what his credentials are but there's no sense that they would uh, you know go on strike or anything they'll go with it of course just, but but it... the most interesting point was uh, Emma Hayes the Chelsea manager said it's going to be the most boring job in the world because England will qualify so easily for the major tournaments the, you, you effectively only manage at the major tournaments Emma Hayes might have Potentially, the Chelsea manager might have made a, a a good England manager, but of course, she selfishly decided to go and reproduce, right? I don't think that's the only reason. She's expecting twins, but I don't think she would have done it anyway. It just seems odd to me. There's so many managers out there who've actually had experience on the pitch, managing people, human beings. I just find this whole thing um, slightly disconcerting. Not disconcerting at all, on the <laughs> other hand, is the fact that um, Ryan Giggs is the next Wales manager, beating out one Craig Bellamy. Shout out to Ollie Kay, who did a big interview with Giggs, where he said he was certainly open to the job not that long ago. Is this a good choice for Wales and for Giggs? And in your answer, because everybody in the world, including Alan Shear, has made this joke, I strongly advise you to incorporate some sort of reference to the fact that as a player, Ryan Giggs rarely showed up for uh, Wales-friendly games. It's really not dissimilar to the situation we were just talking about. It, it, it's a weird choice because you've got somebody who's completely unproven in a head coaching role. And I think it probably points to the fact that this reversal in the status of international football, where before being manager of your country would be the sort of pinnacle of your managerial career, something that you'd work towards. And now it's sort of an entry level job, as Giggs alluded to in his interview with Oli Kay when he said, you know, look, other players have come in without very much managerial experience and manage their countries, which is admittedly true. It has happened. Gab, I have a question for you. You wrote a very interesting column in the game on Monday about the inexplicable crisis at Real Madrid. So please explain the inexplicable. Inexplicable is uh, a word used by, not by me, but by, uh, by Zinedine Zidane, um, They've lost their last two home games. They've given up more points this season through 18 matches than they gave up all of uh, all of last season through 38. And they're 19 points behind Barcelona. Although they do have a game in hand, so um, I think they look they look they look disjointed on the pitch. They they really collapsed badly in the second half uh, against Villarreal this past weekend. 
But what is interesting for me is I think this is the first real test for Zidane and especially about how you manage these situations when you're not playing well with the outside world. Going out there and simply saying, oh, but we're playing really well and the ball just doesn't want to go in and no, it's uh, nobody can explain it. It's an unsolved mystery why we're not winning games is generally not a standard approach. A lot of times managers have to go and talk nonsense. Um, in this case, maybe he is being honest and maybe he can get away with it because he's Zidane. But I, I think it's a, it's a major test for him image-wise how he handles this. Hi there, and welcome to The Sweeper, which is the Times' fantasy football service. I'm Charlie Scott, here with Paddy Bombert. Hello, everyone. And we're just going to give a quick roundup of last week's tips, which were quite successful, weren't they, Paddy? Yeah, not bad, actually. Um, it was looking like a tricky week with uh, with City playing Liverpool and a couple of other big matches. We found we found a few. Uh, Marco Anato, which was a very pleasing one. Um, just come off the back of a bit of a disappointing double game week, but those who kept him were rewarded very nicely. Uh, a goal and two assists. Um Son Heung-min was another one we got from the Spurs game. We noticed his incredible run at home. Um, he previously had four goals and four assists in as many games. And he got one of each again at Wembley, so uh, that continues to be pretty reliable. And uh, Hector Bellerin scored for the second week in a row, and uh, and he was our tip for Arsenal that game. So there were some, uh, some, some nice returns there all around. Yeah, well, I mean, quite lucky with old Bellerin, because Arsenal... Well, terrible, but at least he scored, so it was eight points for him. That's part of his attraction, isn't it? He gets forward. Yeah, yeah. I also liked how we picked the wrong West Brom defender. Uh, yeah, there were some big returns, weren't there? Johnny Evans strengthened his case for a uh, big money move. Yeah, Evans and Dawson, 15 points and 14 points, so worth having a look at. But Hagazi, seven points, can't argue with that. Um, and just looking a bit further ahead, I was impressed by Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. Yeah, well, Liverpool obviously, uh, you know, as prolific as City, and actually arguably more consistent in terms of who's going to start and who's reliable. And Oxlade Chamberlain might sort of get more chances now. Coutinho's gone, do you reckon? Yeah, I think so. I mean, he's only 5.6 million, only 2% of FPL managers own him, and goal and a very good assist against City. I, he could be could be a bargain in midfield. Where else do you see a bit of value? I, I know I, Jordan Ibe caught my eye at 4.8 million. He scored for Bournemouth takes plenty of shots uh, has done recently in recent weeks anyway and uh, and Tim Fossey Mensa at Palace 4.4 million for a defender who is starting games now and then they look a bit more solid at the back what do you reckon that's a bargain yeah I uh, follow a few Palace fans on Twitter and they're saying big things about Fossey Mensa I think he's impressed in the last few weeks also just going back to Bournemouth Callum Wilson I took a punt on him earlier in the season then he failed to score for about four weeks but he seems to be back in the team and got a goal at the weekend and an assist 12 points I was impressed by him and plenty more thoughts on a similar nature in uh, in Friday's email. Uh, you can sign up for free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash fantasy football. And there will be a competition coming up. Our last one has just finished. Congratulations to uh, George Boras. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. Uh, he wins a signed copy of Oliver Kay's book after his team, uh, Fuxi Lady, which is an interesting pun. Um, they they got 66, 462 points in December and he correctly answered our, uh, our monthly teaser for December. So uh, he will have a signed book shortly. That's all we've got time for today. Uh, many, many, many thanks to my excellent guest today. With me in the studio, Alison Rudd, the only living gear brand in captivity. And through the magic of modern telephony, speaking to us from the faraway kingdom of Saudi Arabia, it's Mark Clattenburg. Now remember... It's just £3 for a three-month trial if you want to subscribe to our newspaper. Just search the Times online, and this season, in addition to our excellent content, you can access highlights of every single game in the Premier League, the Champions League, the Europa League, and the FA Cup as well. Who doesn't love that magic of the Cup? Have a good week, and 
We're going to catch you next Monday. The Game is brought to you by The Times. For more information and more podcasts from The Times, head to thetimes.co.uk.